If you had a Bible, we are still in Matthew chapter 6. I know it's been a couple of weeks now, moving glacially slow, uh, one verse at a time, actually, it seems. Uh, today uh, could have been lumped into last week, but I uh, didn't want to do a two-hour sermon, so we split it into two, um, into this week. But no, today, uh, I really believe that God is going to give a lot of breakthroughs today and going to give a lot of help to us today. Uh, again, Matthew 6, verse 13. We all know what the verse says. We've read this prayer many times, so we'll get into that in just a few minutes. But I want to start out by uh, throwing something here on the screen for you to consider. What if I told you that there was one request that we could make to God that would spare us so much trouble and grief that would prevent most Again, I can't control everybody and everything, but just pertaining to us and the decisions that we make. What if I told you there is one request that we can make to God that would spare us so much trouble and so much grief that would prevent most of our regret and our guilt? Pretty awesome if that's actually available to us, isn't it? What if I told you that this same request is universally appropriate for everyone to make? No matter where you are, what walk of life you're at, that one size fits all. Everybody can pray this, make this one request, and all of us could experience this, this likewise experience. What if I told you that this request, if made at the start of each day or as many times throughout the day as you got to make it, what if I told you that if it was meant and intended, if God's response to it was met with obedience, well then, this request would spare the world of most, if not all, of its man-made and man-caused trouble. It'd be pretty incredible if that were actually available to us. I'd say so. It may sound too good to be true. Maybe you're thinking that this morning. But keeping with this enticing, provocative proposal, I, I want to ask you some questions, basic questions about stories in the Bible, that uh, uh, moments in world history, real things that will happen about real people. I want to ask you some questions that I think all of us know the answer to, even if you're pretty new to faith, I think you're going to know the answer to these questions. You'll find out that they're all the same answer pretty much, actually. Um, so why did Adam and Eve sin against God? What caused them to sin? In the most basic or general sense, so don't overthink this, why did Adam and Eve, what caused Adam and Eve to sin against God? What would you say? I think we all would say they were tempted to, right? I mean, the basic, the impetus of what they did, the decision they made, it began with a temptation. They were tempted to. And of course, when God confronted Adam for the sin that he committed, what was his response to God? The wife that you gave me tempted me. God, it's not my fault. I was tempted by her. So God said, okay, Adam, let me talk to Eve. Eve, why did you sin? And, Adam, and Eve said, it's not my fault. The serpent that you allowed in here, he tempted me. Of course, the serpent smiled, gladly taking the blame, knowing this was his plan all along, knowing that his tactic had proven effective and that he, as he slithered away, he knew this was just the beginning of tempting people successfully. But let's keep it going. What caused Cain to kill his brother? God pretty much gave him a heads up about it 
prior to Genesis 4 verse number 8 tells us, this is God to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary as in it's not good. It's not good for you. It doesn't want your best. It may feel like it's what the, the best thing to do right now. It may feel appropriate. It may seem fair. It may seem right. But its desire is against you. Don't forget it. You've got to get a hold on this. Lest it get a hold of you. Now something changed from generation to generation in that first and second age. Cain wasn't a blank slate like his parents. He was bent towards sin, making his drift even more likely while it was crouching at the door. But the long and short of it, he was tempted to, and it didn't take much to get him to. This story of temptation and tendency would continue. What caused Noah to get off the ark and get blackout drunk? What caused him to do that? What caused Lot to go down to Sodom? What caused Abraham to bail out on and cheat on his wife? What caused Jacob to lie, cheat, and steal? We could go on and on with our heroes, couldn't we? Not just in Genesis, but what caused Moses to murder someone and disobey God? What caused Aaron to make a golden calf? What caused David to sin against Uriah? What caused Solomon to do a whole sort of things wrong? Now, this isn't to remove personal responsibility. They made decisions. Their hands were on the ball. They drove it down the court. It was on them. If you read David in the Psalms, he didn't blame anyone for his biggest failures. He felt the weight. He took responsibility. He was laden with guilt. But in all of these episodes, it began with a temptation. These strong, godly people were tempted and they failed because of it. Sometimes by a feeling, sometimes by a somebody or something, a crafty snake, a bright lit city, a convincing family member, a newly planted vineyard, a pressing situation that seemed to give them no other way forward. They had a lot of things that tempted them, but the source of it all was temptation. First, they were tempted and their response not only says something about the potential nature they had, but it says more about their definitive nature as a creature. You see, even before we were sinful, we were still creatures. As in we were created by somebody bigger, stronger, wiser, and mightier. We are finite, and as created beings, we need a leader. Now, that may be a little insulting to the independent, strong-minded people that we are in today's world, but we are a creature. We have a beginning. We have an end. We can't control our beginning. We can't control our end. That tells me and you that we're a creature, we're a created being, and we need, as in our hearts long for and look for, there is a vacuum in every heart for leadership, for direction. Now, maybe you don't buy that, but what happens when we're tempted, as evident in all these stories? What do you do when you're tempted? You follow temptation many times, don't you? Temptation looks for and seizes every opportunity to lead us and control us. Unless, unless we've already made our minds up about who or what we're following. And we're not going to unfollow for something less. A rare exception to the biblical stories about, that doesn't end with humiliation and disgrace is the story of Joseph. We know his story very well. He was tempted many times. The most memorable moment, he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. His integrity was on the line. 
He was tempted in the dungeon when it seemed like his faith was in vain. He was tempted before Pharaoh when it seemed like his faith might get in the way. Every single time he was tempted, but Joseph did not follow through, did he? Because Joseph was already in a committed creature-leader relationship. He was already following a leader and he refused to unfollow him in order to take a lesser path. Unlike Adam, unlike Cain, unlike Noah, unlike Lot, unlike Abraham, unlike Jacob, unlike Moses, and go on and on and on, they chose to follow the wrong leader, which maybe suggests their commitment to the leader they should have had wasn't as strong as it maybe seemed. Joseph was committed. He did not unfollow in order to take a lesser path. Now, we're in week three of a conversation about prayer. And we've come to a request that I believe has the most powerful, has the most power to curb our sinful natures within us. This is where our sinful nature is gonna rise up and fight more than now. We already know it fought us when we were about to surrender to God. It fought us when we started having to pray for God to give us things that maybe we didn't wanna ask for. But your sinful nature, my sinful nature, fights this more than it fights anything. It puts both feet on the brake and says, I'm not budging. If you don't think that, wait until the rest of the hour is over. We are prone, we are wired, we are likely to follow the lead of temptation. But this request, this line of the prayer gives us a way out if we want it. We all know this one very short, Matthew 6, 13. Jesus says, and as we pray, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So this prayer is a confession, a confession that temptation is everywhere and that we are likely to follow its lead unless we pray this prayer. More specifically, unless we are doing what this prayer implies we should already be doing. Now, I think we all are well-versed and very familiar with temptation, aren't we? I don't have to explain what it is. I will later, but I don't have to explain what it is up front. I don't have to talk to you about, hey, this is what it's like to be tempted. We know what it's like to be tempted, don't we? Temptation comes in all colors, shapes, and sizes. So to ask you the tough question up front, what causes you? Who leads you into temptation? Do you ever lead you into temptation? Now, don't answer that one out loud. But most of us, if we're being honest, have to say yes to that one. We've got a lot of experience with temptation. If we're being honest, we claim we hate its company, but we sure do entertain it a lot. We have it over so much, don't we? It has its own chair in the living room. You know, if we've learned anything from this prayer so far, it's that we cannot pray this prayer if we're not at a posture of surrender. We learned that from week one, didn't we? More importantly, then what we pray is to whom we pray and how we pray. And we've learned that prayer is not about proving ourselves to God. It's not about moving God towards our will. It's about choosing to trust in God as Father and surrendering to Him as our King and our Lord. That's what the opening part of this prayer is all about. Jesus says in verse 8, God knows what you need. He loves you. He cares for you. You can trust him. So as you pray, hallowed be his name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So if we're surrendered to God and we trust God, we should have no issue praying that part of the prayer. Even though it still may be a challenge at times, we should have the ability to get through it. And if you've been praying that with me the last month, you know that it, you're better for it, aren't you? You're at peace, you're content, you have that that you can't find in the world. Likewise, we come to the ask it part. This is too informed by the idea of trust and surrender. It's about total dependence on God. Aware of our nature, we don't come with our wants. God knows what we want, already told us in verse eight, but we don't come to God saying, God, I want this, I need this. We come to God saying, God, what do you say that I need? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what you need. You need provisions and pardons. But again, the spin that he puts on these requests, we don't simply ask for everything, though we might want to. We ask for less than everything because we don't want to have something that might distract us from God. Now, that's not me saying that. That's what God says I should say because I want a lot of distractions. If you want to get me in my flesh, I want a lot of things and I don't care if it distracts me from God at all. That's what my flesh says. I pray for everything. Oh, I can handle it. I can handle it. I'm, I don't need somebody to tell me I, I need to ask for limited qualities, quantities of stuff. Who do you think you are? Jesus. Jesus says you ask for less because we have a greater need and we don't want to be distracted or detract from that prize. For the sake of our body, soul, and spirit harmony and well-being, we ask for limited provisions while resting in the greater treasure of unlimited forgiveness which Jesus instructs us to ask God to make us share that forgiveness with others. So yes, we know that our forgiveness comes from God, but we also must forgive others because his abundant gift is too rich to hold to ourselves. So as we've made, as it's already been made clear, Jesus is not playing around with this prayer, is he? I don't think so. They asked him to teach them how to pray because they knew something was off with them and God. And Jesus blows that hunch out of the water, one megaton after another, revealing that our wills and God's will are not in uniform. In fact, if we've learned anything from Jesus teaching on prayer, it's that our wills and our ideas are not automatically in line with God's. They're actually in contrast with God's. I think what we most often underestimate about this world is how contrary it is to God's kingdom. We assume it's neutral, but it's much worse. That's why it's so vital that we learn to pray like Jesus taught us to pray so that we might be open to God's word and God's will regarding the things that sin might have deceived us over and that this world might have blocked us from. So in today's verse, Jesus is trying to help us detect these areas of weakness and these blind spots. But here's where we're at as we get into it. We must first realize and confess our need before we will be open to his lead. Because we won't ask him to deliver us or lead us from if we don't think there's a problem in front of us. Now, shouldn't this be a given for Christians? I mean, you know, just kind of talking off the grid here. Shouldn't this be a given? I mean, if we're Christians, don't we realize we have a need that we can't quench and satisfy ourselves? Don't we realize what sin is doing to us isn't the reason why we're Christians because we know we need to be saved? So why is it even a question if we're following the leader or not? Well, Jesus knows that our world draws us away and Jesus knows that religion often detracts from this central message of Christianity. But I gotta ask you, when did following Jesus become an option for Christians? Doesn't Christianity equal following Jesus? So why, why is it important that we pray, hey, don't lead me in the wrong direction? If we're following Jesus, shouldn't we already be going in the right direction? 
You say it depends on what following means. I mean, in this age of social media, we follow people that we never even see what they post because it's just kind of the algorithm's all confused and people just kind of share things infrequently. <laughs> That's not what following Jesus is like, though. It's not what it's supposed to be like, at least. And there we see maybe the breakdown. Could it be the reason? Could it be the reason why we're so often open to temptation is because we've forgotten what Christianity is all about? And maybe this explains why our wills are so different and stay so different even after we're saved because we're still following the wrong things. Temptation still has its hooks in us. But temptation is not greater and must bow to the invitation. What invitation? It's the invitation that Jesus issued again and again. If you read the gospels, he said this simple invitation 20 times or more, explicitly and implicitly even more. What did Jesus say to people who were new to him, had been with him, were thinking about leaving him or were coming back to him? What did Jesus say over and over and over and over and over again when they came to him and said, Jesus, what is your movement all about? What does it mean to be a Christian? What did he say again and again? Follow me. Follow me, as in literally follow me, walk where I walk, do what I do, say what I say, be like me. Follow me in my footsteps. You keep your eyes and your ears on me. Now we hear follow and we think, where are you going? I mean, what place are you taking us to? But Jesus was taking us to a what? An idea, a set of ideas. But think about this, where was Jesus headed with his life and his ministry? Where did he end up? A cross. The cross is more than a place, it's an idea, it's a philosophy, an idea that many could not buy into. They unfollowed him for it. But when the cross turned into a resurrection, many refollowed him, didn't they? And Acts tells us the story of the followers of the way because Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the pathway to true life. And contrary to every other way, better than every other way, the only way that leads to life and those that followed the way, those that lived on this way, that followed Jesus, went on to change the world. They weren't defined by what they believed. They were defined and distinct by how they behaved, radically different than anybody Morally, socially, economically, politically, they were different because they were following Jesus like he said they should. But our world today, Christianity has become such a muddled thing, hasn't it? We define ourselves so differently. We have our own set of beliefs and that makes us different. It makes it, and it's okay because we're all doing it our way. <laughs> but come on. At its very core, Christianity is synonymous with following Jesus, the exclusive way to true and abundant life only found through his life, his teaching, his death and resurrection. It was unavoidable in those that followed him in the first century, but this hasn't stayed at the forefront of our message, has it? It's been watered down through the years, not just a little bit, a whole lot. Because follow me has strings attached, doesn't it? It expects a very narrow, focused lifestyle. If you read the fine print, yes to Jesus is going to mean no to self. Yes to all of Jesus means a lot of no's to self. So over time, the church felt like it was too strong 
to say it's all about following Jesus. We changed the message through the years and we made it about just believing. Now, of course, John 3, 16 is very true, but instead of emphasizing that we should trust in God, it became about just believing about God, believing these things, believing that this and that happened. And that's enough. But over time, we've detached believing in from trusting in. See, I can't tell you that, you know, we can, we, all of us can believe anything. And no one can say, well, I don't, you don't believe that. Nobody knows what I believe and no one knows what you believe. But people can see how you live. See, we've detached believing in from trusting in. And even more, we've detached it from following Jesus. And while trusting in will impact one's behavior, mere beliefs don't always do it. Because we find loopholes and we find excuses, don't we? You can fake believing, but you can't fake following. We've proven that simply believing doesn't guarantee that we're being led, that we're following. It's this watered down effect that causes Christians to wince at Jesus' most repeated command. On one occasion, they asked Jesus to define Christianity. They said, hey, Jesus, you're the Christ. What's it all mean? And this, this is the only commandment that he repeats in all four gospels. It's a big deal. Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke, 8, Luke 9, and John 12 you find a version of this commandment. If anyone would come after me, literally that means follow me, but the, the English translators changed it because it sounds redundant. If anyone would follow me, let him, take, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus, you repeated yourself. I know I did because I want to make it so very obvious. Follow me. Say yes to me which means no to yourself, but that's for your own good. Even still, we've diluted being a Jesus follower so much that we've deleted the follower part. Over the years, many believed and also followed, but most who believed were confronted with this reality. They wonder why it got so serious. As a result, the church has created a lot of Jesus fans, a lot of Jesus consumers, but not as many followers. You see, the enemy's goal in all of this was to fix Jesus to a stationary place. Following him becomes an afterthought and living like him becomes a forgotten thing. This is why perhaps the template for prayer has been so challenging to adopt because so many of us, for most of us, being a Christian has been reduced to believing in God and then bartering with God rather than surrendering to and following Jesus, which is what it was always meant to be about. Even so very clearly, even though it's been very clear to us in the Lord's Prayer, and it's most clear in verse 13. Now, let me, very, let me be honest. Let me be clear to y'all. I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm trying to break us out of this religious mess that we've got ourselves in. God is not trying to knock anybody down. He's trying to raise us up because this is the difference. Listen, this is the difference from escaping temptation and obeying the invitation. This is the difference maker. This verse, this prayer, its confession is that along the way, there are exit ramps every little bit, every few miles, every few, few yards even. There are exit ramps that say, you can get off now. You can get off now. Why don't you get off? Why don't you take this exit? Why wouldn't you go this direction? Why is God trying to hold you back? Why is that person in your way? Why are those people causing you trouble? Take this exit ramp and do what you want to do. Do what you know is right in your own eyes. This is your way. Take it. Every single one of us, we are faced with exit ramps. Sometimes before at nine o'clock, we've already been given a dozen options to take an exit. 
to get out of God's will, to get out of God's peace, and to go in the wrong direction. And only by following Jesus will you avoid sin. But let's be honest, because we've been, we've been honest today, and we should keep it going. We aren't always trying to avoid sin, are we? Oh. We aren't always closed off to sin, are we? We can't always pray verse 13 with a clear conscience because we don't know if we want to avoid it. Now, I know you don't want to say that out loud. Come on, we're friends. You can think it. God already knows it. You can't be open to, much less planning to, lead yourself or give into temptation and pray this prayer. That would make us hypocrite. So i got to ask you, because I think a lot of us are right here today. I think a lot of us are stuck in this rut today. Do you play the sin now, ask forgiveness later game? As in, I know it's wrong, and yeah, I could get a way out of this, but I could just keep going, and then I could just sin, and I could feel good for a little bit, and then feel bad, and ask God to forgive me, and I could just get in this washing machine and go over and over and over again. I could let that thing get to me. I could let that person get to me. I could let that thing fester. I could go there. I could think that I could go in that direction. You know what? It's wrong. I know it's wrong. I feel bad about it, but you know what? I just, uh, you know, I'm just going to do what I always do, which is sin now and ask forgiveness later, and it usually works. Do you play that game? Are you trying to get by with, cover up, and justify sin more often than you are following Jesus away from it? Is that you? Because let's be honest, that's a lot of us, isn't it? I mean, we, we have this gymnastic that we do in our head. Well, I can get by with it because the Bible doesn't really say that, and that person really deserves it, and I could cover it up, and I could justify it, and God knows what I'm going through because he didn't really know me when he wrote that. So, hey, I can get by with it. That's okay. Or are we following Jesus to get us out of the messes that we dig ourselves into every day? Which is it? If you do, I want to talk. God wants to rescue you from this religion today, if this is you. Come on, doesn't that reduce our faith to a shallow game? And doesn't that suggest that God is some kind of utility, a vending machine that we can visit once or twice a day? Is that, isn't it, is, don't you think it's better than that? I mean, don't we pray hallowed be thy name, not shallow be thy name? Hello? I'm not saying this is this because God wants to get you. I'm saying this because God wants to help you. If you live in this cycle of sin, guilt, and atone, rent and repeat, every time you sink a little bit lower and a little bit lower in terms of self-respect and intimacy with God. And I want you to know that Christianity is way better than that. It's better than that. And if you have had Christianity reduced to this game all your life, good news, it's better than that. The games we play are meant to make us feel better about sin and ourselves, but all they really do is protect sin that is filling us with regret. And in the process, our relationship with God is numb and empty, and we are numb and empty, aren't we? We may still come to church, go to communion, go to mass, go to confession, but eventually we still we feel silly and worthless about it. Fortunately, this is not Christianity. It's way better than that. That version is all about getting away with sin to avoid discomfort while it eventually traps us in sin and entrenches us in discomfort. Isn't that true? That game of I'm going to sin now, get forgiveness later, I'm going to try to get away with it, get by with it, ask, you know, justify it. Isn't it true? The way you try to protect your sin, it just ends up trapping you in it. And you didn't avoid discomfort. You just 
trapped yourself in more of it. Hmm. Do you think that's how God wants you to live? Of course you don't. It's important that we air this out. I know it's uncomfortable, but you know why it's uncomfortable? Because so many of us are living in this discomfort. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Church, we can't plan sin, be open to sin, or entertain sin and pray to be delivered from it. That's why it doesn't work. We underestimate the danger of it, don't we? Oh, well, my sin isn't that bad, and it's emotional. It's, you know, it's not their sin. Their sin's awful. Have you seen what they do lately? Hey, it's not me, not mine. Isn't it how it works? We don't ask God to deliver us. We often go headlong into things the world, the word of God clearly warns us about. And then when things don't work out, we get mad at God. But we're not really mad at him. We're mad at ourselves for considering something that we know was never gonna be good for us. But what causes this? What leads us into temptation? What causes us to lead ourselves into things that only make us feel with regret? I mean, I think there's fear, insecurity, anger, guilt. There's all those things. But I think ultimately there's two things that cause us to entertain temptation and to give in to temptation. These are the reasons we leave the door open, the reason we often take the exit ramp. We're deceived by sin, supposing that maybe this time it'll actually be worth it, that for us it's not wrong this time. Ultimately, the reason why we follow temptation, the reason why we give in to temptation is because we're serving two masters, preservation and pleasure. Oh, King James, you grew, up, you grew up hearing this verse, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And here's you a modern version of it su su summarized to two points. It's about, hey, how can I preserve me and how can I make sure pleasure is my number one option? How can I make sure that I'm gratified and protected? That's why you give into temptation. That's why you won't shut the door on that thing. That's why you won't turn away from that thing. That's why you keep the door open because you think it might give you one of these two things. These two roads are appetites, and we know appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And here's the thing. These are normal human instincts, but they're lousy leaders. They are incapable of leading us. Where they lead us, they leave us. Satan disguises himself in these two cloaks again and again, and he's incredibly patient in his efforts to convince us to give in. He's very patient. Here's the thing that these two masters Self-preservation and pleasure lead us in circles. We're always going to need more protection. We're always going to want more gratification. Eventually, if you make your decisions around these two pillars again and again and again, eventually we're tied around the pole. Eventually you find yourself questioning everything until you relent to a life that has no greater meaning whatsoever. So you know what Satan's goal is in tempting you with these two things? He tempts you with pleasure and preservation, but his goal is to empty you of purpose in life. And he's good at it, isn't he? Think back to those examples at the beginning. Had his, this has been his strategy from the beginning. Promises the world, but digging graves. You know what happens to people who are consumed by and chase after protection and satisfaction at all costs? They feel small, they feel unpleasant, and they live for self. It results to a life where they only have themselves to show for it. And that's no way to live. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 
We know how true this statement is. We give into it again and again. But remember, there is a way out. There is a way out. The invitation of Jesus breaks the power and destroys the illusion of temptation. To wrap all this up, we're saying that Jesus' invitation shatters temptation's power. Jesus said this is about denying yourself, taking up your cross, following me. So if you look at Jesus' life, what did his life of self-denying, anti-self-preserving, anti-self-gratifying, cross-bearing, what did his life of self-denying and cross-bearing result in? And what does it say about our following through? Jesus proved that it results in doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people and the greater kingdom of God. That's what a life of self-denying and cross-bearing results in. Don't you see where Jesus is trying to lead you today? Don't you see what being a Jesus follower is ultimately all about? How the invitation can trump the temptation? It's about finding true purpose just across the border of what's in it for you. Finding meaning that is more about what's in it for me, but being a means to an end of somebody or something else. What did we learn at Easter time when Jesus observed the disciples arguing over who was the greatest in the kingdom of God? What did he rebuke them and what did he say They must know if they want to be great. He said, it shall not be so among you. Whoever should be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Do you think he's just blowing smoke here? I mean, we're tempted to roll our eyes and say, of course, this is where this goes. Jesus is trying to confront the temptation in front of all of us. This is his invitation. This is where he is leading us to focus on me. Self-preservation and self-gratification is what temptation says. But Jesus says, if you follow me, I won't offer you empty promises. I I will offer you true fulfillment. And you know what that is? Following Jesus leads to the opposite of a life of temptation. And that's a life of love. What did Jesus say the night before he died to his disciples? They will know you by your love. By this they'll know that you're mine if you love one another. Say, well, how does that counter temptation? Here's how. Love looks for ways to honor and submit to before temptation prevents ways to take from and use. How many people do you take from every day? They don't even know it, but you do, don't you? How many people do you use every day? You walk over and walk past them. Love says, you know what? The day is all about honoring God, submitting to God, and by va- to validate that, to affirm that, I'm gonna honor people before I even get a chance to tempt temptation to use them and take from them. I'm gonna look for ways to honor people and submit to people. Who is that crazy, Justin? Jesus was. And that's why you're saved. And if you're following Jesus, this is where he calls you and he calls me. Love does not sin with. Love does not sin against. Love honors. Love submits to. When we sin, we hurt someone, don't we? We take advantage of someone, don't we? And maybe they don't know. And maybe you're getting by with it. But what if they found out? It would expose us as the biggest liars on earth, wouldn't it? We say I love you, but we don't mean it. 
What does it say about a Christian who says, I believe and I follow, but they don't mean it? Who are we fooling? Ourselves. That's who. Over in Matthew 7, Jesus tells the parable of the house built on the rock. But then he says in verse number 26, Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The winds came and the rain fell and the floods came and beat on the house and it fell. And great was its fall. Temptation has brought down a lot of people, hasn't it? It's brought down a lot of us. It's caused us to entrench ourselves in habits and lifestyles we would be ashamed of if anybody else knew them. And we would have broken homes if somebody found out about them. But come on, does living that kind of lie and pretending to be something you're not and having a house of cards, is that any way for a Jesus follower to live? Is it? James says, what good is faith doing if you're not following Jesus? This makes us a little tense, doesn't it? A little mad. Because it exposes our motives. We don't want to admit that our quest for preservation and pleasure are self-centered. We know all of this. And there's something in us that wants to protect the mess that we've made. But Matthew 6.13 assumes that we are Jesus followers and that we've surrendered. So, yes, there's tension. And in that tension in your heart today, in that tension that you justify as preservation and gratification, as something that you deserve and something that nobody else understands, in that tension that you feel right now, that tension, that conviction, that is where God is working. That is where Jesus Jesus is saying, follow me, follow me. I know you don't want to let go. I know you don't really want to pray, lead me not. I know, I know, I know, but this is where I want to do the biggest work in your life. You're holding on to these things that are holding on to you and holding you back. They cause you to use others, to take advantage of others. They don't even realize it, but you do. They hurt others. And more importantly, your relationship with God as a result has become numb and useless. And nobody knows that more than you. What do we have to show for our temptation, falling through to temptation? Regret, ruin, erosion of our relationships. I think it's easy to summarize it like this. Temptation is the threshold to loss. And we've lost a lot because we've walked across that threshold, haven't we? Jesus' invitation is the threshold to life. Temptation says turn inward, choose preservation, choose gratification. Following Jesus says look around and look up. If we're not letting Jesus lead us, we're being tempted with less and threatened with loss. I know we struggle. I get it. This is heavy. I understand that. I don't like preaching this as much as I don't like hearing it. But I want to tell you, the Bible invites you to know that God is not here to judge you. God wants to help you. God wants your heart to be healed. The Bible says that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is every respect was tempted as we are. Yet he did not sin. He was tempted with preservation. He was tempted with pleasure. And yet he said no, because he always had you on his mind and God on his mind. 
So here's what we can do. We can with confidence, let's say that together, with confidence, draw near to a throne of what? Grace. We think about God's throne, we think about judgment, don't we? It's the mighty thunder throne of judgment, but this is a throne of grace where you can receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. Don't wait until you're tempted again. Right now, your heart wants to be free from having allegiance left to things and people and places that are no good for you. So when you pray, lead me not in temptation, deliver me from evil, you're not praying to someone who doesn't understand, who deep, but you're praying to someone who deeply loves you and cares for you. I'll leave you with words from Jesus himself. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, rest and relief. The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and what they follow me. I give them eternal abundant life. They will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And that includes you, temptation. You cannot snatch me out of the hand of Jesus. So are you following Jesus? Really? Or are you trapped in some religious game that is trying to protect the very poison Jesus is trying to extract? The prayer is not a magic spell, but it's a way of rehearsing and realigning your faith, a way of recommitting yourself to follow Jesus, a way to remember That Jesus' invitation breaks the power and destroys the illusion of every temptation. Your temptation can bow to his invitation. Something, Something in you says, no, it can't. No, it can't. It never will. I just can't. It can. He will lead you. He wants to lead you. He loves you. I don't know what your temptations are. Whatever makes you take your life into your own hands. Whatever makes you hold on to things that God has washed away. I don't know what it is. But you can make this decision today. I can't make it for you. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me. Save me from evil. As much as Jesus lives to rule, he loves to lead his sheep, to rescue his sheep from sin and give us life. If you need it this morning, you can receive it from a God who loves you and wants the best for you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily bread. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead me not into temptation. Break the chains. Destroy the illusion of temptation. Preservation, the quest for gratification, they're all lies. They don't have my best in mind. They're lousy leaders. You alone, God, are my king. You alone have my best in mind. You alone can lead me to life. So lead me not 
into temptation. Deliver me from this evil that I might live a life full of abundance and joy, peace and purpose. Father, in this house today, there's many that I hope prayed along with me and meant that, that are seeking deliverance today. They're tempted by things that are real and powerful and that feel as if they have their life in their hands, but nobody can snatch them out of Jesus' hands. Remind them that, Father. No one can take them out of your hands. Remind them that temptation is not more powerful than you. The anxiety, the fear, the guilt, the grief, all the things that control them, the things that make them go in that direction, that leave that door open, they're not greater than you. Rebuke those things and give victory, Lord, to those that are praying for you to lead them in the better way. We ask this in your good and gracious name. Amen.